at John 19, so if you want to turn to John chapter 19, we're looking at verses 17 through 27, page 905 in the ESV Pew Bibles, John 17, excuse me, John 19, 17 through 27. Heavenly Father, we freely acknowledge that this is your holy, inspired, and inerrant word, and we come to it this morning in faith. We come to it with a posture of humility and, and wanting to, to learn and hear from you. So we ask that you would give us the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that it would be open to your gracious teaching in our lives and that this would result in us uh, wanting to, to worship you with more fervency and wanting to follow you with even more heartfelt commitment. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The earth does not complete its circuit around the sun in exactly 365 days. It's more like 365 days and six hours, which means every four years we add a day to the calendar. In fact, this year, 2024, is a leap year, so we are going to add a day to the end of this month. Instead of having 28 days in February, this month we will have 29 days. Now, people who are born on February 29 have a problem. For three-fourths of their life, they are unable to celebrate their birthday on their actual birthday. So here's how they get around it. They pick another day, and they celebrate on that day instead. It's, pretty, it's a pretty easy fix. Now, parents will tell children, it's not really your birthday, but we're going to celebrate on this day. And that's a hard concept for them sometimes to, to grasp. So you, you might hear a young child with a February 29 birthday saying, is this my real birthday this year? And parents once again have to come back and assure them, no, it's not your real birthday, but we're going to say it is. So we're going to call this your birthday today. And we're going to celebrate it like it's your birthday, you're going to have a party like it's your birthday. You're going to get presents like it's your birthday. You're going to eat cake and ice cream like it's your birthday. And we are going to treat you like it's your birthday. And usually that's all it takes and the kids are fine with it. And it works. It works. At no time has Jesus ever been or is or will be a sinner. But when he went to the cross, he was reckoned a sinner. Jesus was treated like a sinner. He was led away like a sinner. He bore his cross like a sinner. He was nailed to the cross like a sinner. He was taken outside the city like a sinner. And even though he was not a sinner, he was reckoned as a sinner for us. 
on the cross. Good preachers always have to beat a path to the cross. In other words, if good preachers will, wherever they're at in the Bible, always make sure that somehow they get to the message of Christ and the cross, no matter where they are. They want to put Jesus up front. They want to put the cross in the center. I don't have to do that this morning. Because this passage is all about the cross. In, in this passage, we have the cross dominating the verses. You can't miss it. This is like sitting in the front row of an IMAX movie theater with, with the cross displayed on the entire screen. It just fills our field of vision. It's all about the cross. And as we look at the cross this morning, I want us to keep two things in mind. Number one, what is the purpose of John's writing the Gospel of John? We've talked about it before. I want to remind us of it. What is the purpose of the book of John? And number two, why is it so important for us to see, and why is it so important for, for John to show us Jesus being reckoned a sinner on the cross. So let's keep both of those things in mind as we look at this passage. This is John 19, let's start at verse 27, or excuse me, 17. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his home. Verse 17 begins by telling us that they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So Jesus bore his own cross. Jesus bore his own cross. Now this was standard practice for the condemned man who was to be executed by crucifixion to carry his own cross. Usually, and most likely, it was the horizontal cross beam and not the horizontal and the vertical piece. Probably wasn't carrying the entire cross. That would have been extremely heavy. It would have been difficult for a healthy, fit man 
to, to carry something like that, let alone someone who had been beaten and flogged. And in fact, Jesus was unable to carry the cross all the way to his crucifixion site. We know they impressed Simon of Cyrene to do it. But it was most likely the, the horizontal piece carrying the cross identified Jesus as a sinner. When someone saw a cruci- or a condemned man walking through the streets of Jerusalem and they were carrying that cross beam on their map, on his back, they knew that was a one-way trip. That man is going to his death. He's not coming back. That man is a sinner. He's been tried. He's been convicted. He's on his way to death. That was Jesus carrying the cross and taking that, that identifier as a lawbreaker, as a sinner. And not just any lawbreaker, the worst kind. Only the worst criminals were, were crucified. The Romans had a word in Latin that they would spit out with disgust at the lowest, uh, most hated, vilest people, and they were called Fursifer, which literally translated means forked tree bearer or cross bearer. Jesus was a cross bearer. He wasn't actually a sinner, but he was reckoned a sinner. He was reckoned a sinner carrying his cross. In addition, Jesus was reckoned a sinner as he hung on the cross. Under Old Testament law, a man hanging on a tree was cursed by God. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. It says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Now in places like um, Assyria, under the Assyrian Empire, the uh, executed criminals were, were stuck on a pole, and they were put on display, and they were left up indefinitely. <coughs> Excuse me. In Egypt... They would be left on display. The bodies would rot. The animals and the birds would come and pick at them. And that was a sign to scare people. It was a deterrent. And this was to show people, hey, this is what happens to people who go against the king. And so it was a deterrent. It was meant to instill fearful obedience to the king. But in Israel, that was not the case. In Israel, they were commanded to take executed people down on the same day of death. And the idea seems to be here that an exposed body would defile the land. So that's what the first part of those verses are about. But it's that last part, the last phrase, for a hanged man is cursed by God. That's the phrase that Paul picks up in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, where he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's the citation for Deuteronomy. So the curse of the law is the reality that no one can obey the law perfectly, no one except Christ. No one is able to perfectly obey the law of God. No one is able to do everything the law says. So therefore, they are under the curse of the law. They are unable to be justified or declared righteous in God's sight, by perfectly obeying the law. So that's the curse. Deuteronomy 27, 
26 says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And of course, that's everyone. We're all under the curse of the law without Christ, since no one can perfectly obey God. So Paul is saying Jesus redeemed us, he released us from this penalty or curse by becoming a curse for us. Jesus released us from experiencing the wrath of God for our sins by becoming a curse for us, meaning willingly going to the cross and receiving upon himself the penalty for breaking the law. Jesus was not hung on the cross because he was a cursed man. Jesus was not hung on the cross because he failed to obey God's law. He willingly chose to suffer the consequences of not keeping God's law on behalf of those he saves. He was reckoned a sinner, cursed by God as he hung on the cross. So he was reckoned a sinner as he carried his cross. He was reckoned a sinner as he hung on the cross. Now let's talk about the location of the cross. The, the crucifixion site was called the place of the skull in Aramaic Golgotha. And the bottom line is this. We cannot say with 100% accuracy where the exact location of the crucifixion site is today. Some say it was on the east side. Some say it was on the west side of the city. Some say it was on the north side. Um, there is a spot, a certain rock formation that over the years with some erosion, you can kind of see it looks like a skull that's attractive, but nobody knows for sure. We can't come down and say with any sort of accuracy. What we do know is that it was very near the city and yet outside the city gate, outside the city walls. Now being outside the city gate tells us two things. First, this was to show us that Jesus was the ultimate sin sacrifice. Under Mosaic law, the body of the sin offering animal was taken outside the camp or outside the city, outside the, the covenant community and the place where they lived. Leviticus 16.27 says, And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. That's where it originates from. And then Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews, picks up on this detail of Jesus being outside the, the camp and outside the city gate, just like the sin offering animals, in Hebrews 13, 11, and 12. It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You see him making the connection there between the sin offering animal and Jesus, the ultimate sin sacrifice. Both were taken outside the camp. And the point here is that Jesus in his crucifixion was taken to the same place as the sin offerings were. But Jesus, unlike the animals, only needed to be sacrificed once because he's the ultimate sin sacrificed. He made perfect atonement. The animals just pointed forward to the, the sacrifice of Christ. They didn't fulfill, they didn't satisfy, they didn't fully appease or propitiate God's wrath. There needed to be Jesus' sacrifice in order for sin to be atoned for. 
Jesus is the ultimate, once and for all, final sacrifice that accomplished atonement for sin. So that's the first thing that outside the city tells us. Second, being taken outside the city gate was evidence of the reproach of Christ. Jesus was rejected. He was delivered over to a very shameful death as he was reckoned a sinner and cast out. The very next verse of Hebrews 13.13 says, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So the location, wherever it was, was outside the camp and it shows us the reproach of Christ. This was part of his humiliation. The humiliation of being treated like the lowest of sinners and being executed outside the city gates. Jesus was also numbered with the transgressors on the cross. Let's go to verse 18. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. This is another part of his humiliation and this is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a messianic passage and it states, among other things, verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. I don't know how you can read that and not see Christ. I, I just don't know how you can read that and fail to see Jesus. This is a messianic verse that points forward to Christ. He was reckoned a sinner as he hung on the cross between two sinners. Here are the sinners. Criminal number one, Jesus. Criminal number two. Then we have verses 19 through 22. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So this 19 through 22, we have this kind of like um, description of the interaction between Pilate and the, the chief priests at the very end. It was written in three major languages. Those were the three main languages in use in and around Jerusalem at the time, so everyone could read it. Now, the fact that Jesus had a sign was not unusual. All the criminals would traditionally or customarily have a sign. First, they would wear it around their neck on the way to the cross, and then once they got to the execution site, it was nailed to the cross. Once again, this is a deterrent. This is to show everybody who, who witnesses the execution, this, what this, this is what this guy did. He broke the law under Rome, and this is what you get if you break that law in Rome. It was a deterrent. But this seems to be a little more than that. This seems to be personal. Remember, the Jewish leaders had been pushing Pilate. They had been um, uh, making demands of Pilate. They even made some subtle threats to Pilate as they were engaged in that power struggle. Remember, Pilate wanted to release him, but the chief priests were pushing extremely hard for crucifixion. And this sign may have been, may have been Pilate's kind of last little dig on them. Um, by writing this sign and phrasing it that way, he's basically saying, look, you killed your king. This is on you. Now, Pilate is not without uh, responsibility. We don't want to say that he was innocent. He was guilty. But this was Pilate's way of trying to get it off of himself and put it on them. And the chief priests tell Pilate, no, don't write that. Don't, don't write that he was king. Just say that he said he was king. And Pilate's response is, no, no, I'm not going to change that. Deal with it. You killed your king. 
dividing garments while on the cross. Verses 23 and 24, Jesus' clothes were stripped off of him and his clothes were divided among the soldiers. I think it's worth pointing out that the first Adam, when he sinned in the garden, was clothed by God and was given garments of animal skins to cover his nakedness. But the second Adam, Jesus, who never sinned, but when he was reckoned a sinner on the cross, was stripped of his clothes and his nakedness exposed. Well, John allows us to listen in on the conversation between the soldiers as they go about this business of dividing the clothes. This was one of the few perks of being on the Roman death squad. You got to keep whatever clothes the criminals were wearing at the time. So they could either keep them themselves, they could give them to a family member, or they could sell them. Uh, you couldn't just buy clothes off the rack. Back then they were uh, made by hand, all of them. It was labor intensive. And so they had some value. The problem was the tunic. It was only one piece. And you couldn't really wear a fourth of a tunic. It was kind of all or nothing. So they said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cast lots for it. And whoever gets it, gets it. And we'll just let them have it all to themselves. But John includes this detail for a reason. If, if someone were approaching the text for the first time, and let's say they were even, uh, they, they've never read the Bible, but let's say they're even an unbeliever, they might run across this section and say, okay, they divided his clothes. Well, well that's kind of unimportant. I don't know why that's in there. Uh, that's seeming, uh, seemingly an irrelevant detail. I guess I'll just gloss over that and keep reading. We might just be tempted to do that, but John calls attention to it. He says, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, and then he cites Psalm 22, they divide my garments among them and my clothing, and for my clothing they cast lots. But two verses earlier, uh, Psalm 22, 16 says, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me, they have pierced my hands and feet. Okay, this is definitely a messianic psalm pointing forward to Christ, but John pulls this out and he draws attention to the fulfillment of Old Testament verses to show us and to show the readers how accurate the Bible is, how connected and how uniform and how, how overly uh, broad and, and unified the entire book of, of uh, the entire Bible is from Genesis to Revelation. He's pulling this all together. Remember, what is the purpose of John writing this book? So that people will believe. He calls attention to the fulfillment of Scripture so that people will believe. And I want us to get our handle, uh, a handle on just how important this is and how impossible it would be and why this is so important, the fulfillment of Old Testament Scriptures, and how impossible it would be for anyone to um, accidentally or randomly fulfill Old Testament Scriptures in one person like Jesus does. The, the people that are a lot smarter than, than I am have figured this out and they've ran the numbers. Here's what they said. Here's an illustration for one person accidentally fulfilling just eight Old Testament prophecies. You've probably heard this. It's an illustration that's out there. A lot of people different cite it, but I'm going to run it by again because I think it's powerful. They said, if you took a silver dollar and you took a black Sharpie and you made a little X on it and you put it down, and then he went to the state of Texas. 
and you began at the border and you started laying down silver dollars and you laid them down so they each touched the other one by the edges touched each other and you did that and you covered the entire state of Texas from end to end all the roads all the, the, the grasslands, all the, all the mountains, you just covered the state. And then you came back again and you laid down more silver dollars on top of those so that it became two feet high with silver dollars. And then you took someone and you blindfolded them and you put them in the middle of the state and you said, go ahead and pick one. And you can go anywhere in the state, but you can only pick one and you only have one chance. The chances of them reaching down and pulling up the marked silver dollar is the same probability of someone accidentally or randomly fulfilling eight of the Old Testament Messianic prophecies. Let's take it one step further. Somebody said, okay, that's, that's pretty mind-blowing. Let's go to 40. Again, people that are a lot smarter than I am told me there are uh, 19 million electrons in a one-inch line. If you lined up an electron one end to another, you know, in a one-inch line, there would be 19 million. They said, now imagine the universe, the entire universe, and you had the power to go anywhere you wanted in the universe and pick out one electron, one time, randomly. The chances of you picking out the marked electron in the universe are the same as somebody accidentally or randomly fulfilling 40 of the Old Testament prophecies about the Christ. There are a minimum, conservative numbers, place it at a minimum of 300. Some say up to 456 direct Old Testament prophecies that Christ fulfilled. So we're not even close with the universe example. This is why John gives us these scripture references. This is why he says, and it's not just here, it's other places in the Gospel of John. This was to fulfill the scriptures, or in order to fulfill the scriptures. He's showing us how many times Jesus fulfilled direct Old Testament scriptures. And he's showing us that no one could accidentally or randomly do that. Only the Son of God, operating under the power and providence of God, could fulfill every single Old Testament messianic prophecy. Now, as someone who, who would be coming to, to the Bible fresh, or someone who's being shown the truths of Christ for the first time, and they said, do you want to take that bet? Do you want to take that one in, in whatever it is chance that Jesus is not who he says to be? I wouldn't bet my life on that. I wouldn't bet my life on a 50-50 chance. If you had two silver dollars, I had to pick one blindfolded, let alone one in the state of Texas. Let's keep moving. Verse 25, providing for Mary while on the cross, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, Mary of Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. So he says to Mary, woman, and to John, your mother. So the disciples are identified. One of them is John. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. So Jesus, with his remaining strength, directs John to take Mary, his mother, into his home. And when it says that from that hour, the disciple took her into 
his home. It doesn't mean that at that hour, John, John said, okay, and took Mary, and they walked off and went back to his home. It means from that moment, John committed. John said, I hear what you're saying, Lord, yes, I will. From this point forward, I will take responsibility. I will provide. I will make sure that she's taken care of. I will take her into my household. And what we've got here is a picture of Jesus actively obeying the fifth commandment while on the cross. There was a high school student in a, a Sunday school class, not, not here, not at the church, but there was a high school student in a, in a Sunday school class who when the teacher was reviewing the Ten Commandments came to honor your father and mother and the high school student said, I didn't know that, that was one of the Ten Commandments. Even though they had grown up in the church, I don't know how they missed it, but somehow this student had not heard that one of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother. So I want to talk to the, the middle school and high school students here for a minute. How many of your classmates do you think are aware that one of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother? I, I hope we're all aware of that, but I'm wondering how many of your classmates do. This is an evangelistic talking point. This is, this is like uh, setting the ball on the... This is like t-ball as far as how easy it would be to, to, to start speaking to your unbelieving friends about Christ. The next time you're talking about your parents or somebody's coming to pick you up or you're talking about your mom and your dad, you can say to your friend, hey, do you, do you know what the fifth commandment is? And if they say no, you can tell them. You can say it's to honor your father and mother. Did you know that? Do you know that God commands us to do that? And they can say, well, what does that mean? Well, honor your father and mother includes obeying your parents. It means doing what they ask the first time. It means helping out at home. It, it could mean cleaning the kitchen. It could mean mowing the lawn. It could mean taking care of the dog. It could mean uh, telling the truth. It could mean not hiding anything from them. It could mean maintaining a respectful posture at all times. It could mean uh, never talking back to them. Never yelling at them, never arguing with them. And I want you as students to see this. You need a savior. Because you haven't kept that perfectly. None of us have. We, none of us have kept that perfectly. You need a savior. Even now, as a student, where you're at right now in life, you need God's grace. Because you've broken God's commandments. I want you to see that. We all need God's grace in our life. You need God's grace in your life. And I want to challenge you, if you haven't already, I want to challenge you to pray and ask God to help you fulfill the fifth commandment. Would you do that? Would you take that challenge? Would you pray and ask God to help you honor your father and mother? Well, Jesus also addressed Mary as woman and not mother. I think you heard that in, in the text. This is for her benefit and for the church. First of all, for her benefit. This was to remind Mary that she should not presume on her relationship with Jesus as, her earthly, as his earthly mother, but to trust in him with active faith, just like every other believing woman. 
Okay, so he takes the emphasis off mother and says woman, which is more of a more of a, a detached address than mother. Mary was a sinner. Mary needed grace and forgiveness just like everyone else. God accepted Mary not because of her relationship to Jesus or giving birth to Jesus. God accepted Jesus, excuse me, God accepted Mary because she repented and believed in Jesus. It's also for the church's benefit. This teaches us that Mary is not a patron of the saints. Mary is not a protector of the church. Mary is not someone we pray to. Mary is not someone we offer up petitions to. Mary is not someone we are to worship in any way whatsoever. Mary did not secure her place in heaven because of an overflow of merit. Mary was accepted by God because she put her faith alone in Christ alone. And that's a message we need to remember. Reckon to sinner. Remember I said keep two things in mind. What is John's purpose in writing his gospel? Let's review it. It's John 20, 31. So that people will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing people will have life in his name. That is the purpose of the gospel of John. So that people will believe. And then the other thing I said to keep in mind, why is it so important for us to see Jesus being reckoned a sinner? And the answer is, so that we understand how God offers salvation to us. The reason John takes the time and all the gospel writers take time to show us Jesus being reckoned a sinner is so that we understand how it is that God offers us salvation. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Jesus is not. Jesus is perfectly righteous. Jesus went to the cross perfectly righteous and yet was reckoned a sinner by God and took the penalty that a sinner deserves so that you and I, who really are sinners, can be reckoned righteous. You can hear that substitute language. Jesus is, this, is not a sinner. Jesus is perfectly righteous. He's reckoned a sinner. We're the sinner. We really are, but we're reckoned righteous. It's, it's like the, the kids with the February 29th birthday that are told on February 28th, it's not really your birthday, but we're going to say it is. And we're going to treat you like it is. So God reckons all of us who trust in Christ. You're really not righteous, but I'm going to say it is. I'm going to declare it, and I'm going to treat you like you are. I'm going to treat you like you're righteous. Now here's where the birthday illustration breaks down. A parent can go up to the child and say, I know it's not your birthday, but we're just going to say it is today. And that's it. We're done. We're going to have your birthday. Today's your birthday. They can do that. There's nothing else that they have to appeal to. They can just declare it. God cannot simply declare us to be righteous without that being based on something real, something concrete, because God is just. And he cannot wave away or overlook our sin. There has to be punishment. We have sinned against a holy God and we have incurred his holy wrath. That has to be dealt with. So he doesn't just declare us righteous without any grounds. Our salvation and being reckoned righteous 
is initiated by God. It is an act of his free grace. However, it is objectively grounded in the cross of Jesus Christ. We cannot be reckoned or declared righteous in God's sight without the cross. That, that just can't happen. Or, to put it another way, God's reckoning of us righteous is made possible by Jesus being reckoned a sinner and taking our place on the cross, receiving the wrath of God that we rightly deserve upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, in him by faith. We need to see Jesus being reckoned a sinner on the cross so that we understand how God has offered salvation to us. Jesus must take the sinner's place on the cross. Which means if you're a believer here this morning, then Jesus took your place on the cross. Jesus took your sin and nailed it to the cross. Jesus took the wrath of God for your sin and placed it on Christ. As Christ was reckoned a sinner on the cross. I mean, this, this never gets old. Whenever we read the gospel accounts and we see the cross front and center like it is for us today on the IMAX screen, we're reminded of both our sin, our debt, and God's grace. And how he lavishes it upon us. We look at the cross and we have to think to ourselves, that should be me. That, that should be me on the cross. But it's not. It's Christ. He took our place. Our salvation leads us to worship Christ. It leads us to thank Christ. It leads us to, to bow down and worship Christ as our Lord and Savior. It never gets old. And it only intensifies the more mature we become, the more we, we grow in our discipleship, and the closer we get to being with him for eternity. It only intensifies this, this, this understanding and this grasping of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Now, if you do not see Christ on the cross for what it is, then none of this makes sense. Okay, so if Jesus is just a man, then this is just blah, 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 blah. It's just, it doesn't really make sense. It's not that big of a deal. If you're a pretty good person, then you don't need Jesus to take your place on the cross. Why would I need that? I'm all right. I'm okay. There was a man who came up to a pastor once after a sermon and, and the man came up to the pastor and he said, thank you, uh, it's good to see you again. I, I don't have anything against you, but I just want to let you know, it seems like you're always talking about the cross and righteousness and sin and justification. And you just started naming all these things. And he said, you know, I, I get that. That's, that's kind of what this is about, but it's just not that relevant. To, to our life, you know? I mean, we want practical stuff and just kind of like rubber meets the road and this is all kind of head knowledge stuff. I mean, I just wish you would preach on something like, you know, um, how to be more successful, you know, in life or how to avoid stress or, you know, something that's really going to make a difference to us. And the pastor, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm. He listened to the man he said, the fact that Jesus was reckoned a sinner for you and took your place is the most relevant news that you will ever hear in your life. And one second after you die, it is going to be the most relevant piece of information 
that you've ever heard. And his point is this. We need to hear the cross preached. We need a pure, unadorned presentation of the cross on a regular basis. This is as relevant as it gets. The Bible teaches us we are all sinners. We all deserve the wrath of God. And as soon as, someone, as, soon as God opens someone's eyes to that truth, all of a sudden Jesus' righteousness becomes the most important thing in their life. All of a sudden, this is something I have to have right now. Tell me exactly again. What do I have to do? How do I do this? How do I get right with God? Tell me that again. It is the most relevant piece of information you will ever hear. They can't get it fast enough when they recognize that Jesus was reckoned a sinner on their behalf. Praise God. John has shown us the cross in this passage. He has shown us Jesus being reckoned a sinner. So as a minister of God's word, I, I have to ask, where are you? Where are you this morning? Are you someone who has recognized that Jesus went to the cross and was reckoned a sinner on your behalf and took God's wrath that you rightly deserve upon himself? Or are you someone who has said, nah, I'm good. I don't need Jesus to take my place. Which one are you? If you have received Christ by faith, then you are going to be welcomed at the table in just a moment. You, you should take the bread and the cup and you receive it by faith. And this is one of God's ordinary means of strengthening your faith. We take this visible, tangible bread and cup, which is a, is a representation and a sign of the inward spiritual reality that God has saved you. Just as you take the bread and the cup into your body, Christ has joined with you spiritually and it is impossible for you to lose your salvation. If you have not recognized Jesus as your Savior, if you, if you have not accepted him as the one who has reckoned a sinner on your behalf, then you can't come to the table this morning. Christ is of no benefit to you. You have no share in Christ and you are in extreme danger spiritually. If you have not come to Christ, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross and was reckoned a sinner so that everyone who places their faith and trust in him will be saved. I promise you on the authority of scripture, if you trust in Christ, you will be saved. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture of the cross in John 19. We see Jesus reckoned a sinner, taking our place on the cross. And in one sense, it, it doesn't get any more simple than this. This whole series has been just that simple. It, it doesn't get any more straightforward than the Bible telling us Jesus took our place. He died, reckoned a sinner, so that we could be reckoned righteous. Father, I pray that we would be strengthened by this spiritual truth, that this would lead us to increased worship, increased thankfulness and gratitude, that this would propel us forward into further holiness and obedience, and Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted in Christ, I pray that you would move on them today and that you would call them. In Jesus' name, amen.